we're going to be reading verses 18 to 25. And the very first verse that we dive into really talks about what Nico was talking to our little ones about. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope that that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Father God, we love you so much. And we thank you for the hope that you have given us in our lives. The hope through Jesus Christ. That glory awaits those who place their trust in you. Father, we love you. We praise you. And we pray that as we unpack this text together and we learn more about what your word says, that it would touch our hearts and become not just an academic study or not just plain words on a paper, but that it would pierce our hearts, causing us to get closer to you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We have before us a very uh, powerful um, word of God. Now, if I wasn't okay, what would happen? The whole church would have done what you guys just did. And then somebody would have come running up here to make sure that I was okay. Grabbing my heart, grabbing my arm. You would have wondered what was going on. And my groaning would have told you something, wouldn't it? There was definitely something wrong. Groaning is a language. Infants don't speak a language that we know of. They speak something, but we don't know what it is most of the time. But they have no problem letting mommy and daddy know that there's something wrong with them. They groan and they cry in that universal language that tells us that there is heartache, that there is sorrow, there is suffering of some form. And their parents understand. And their parents respond. When Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, died, The Bible tells us that Jesus came four days after he had passed away. And then Mary 
comes out to meet Jesus, and she collapses at his feet, and she weeps. And the Bible tells us that Jesus groaned. And then in the shortest verse in the Bible in John 11.35, Jesus wept. Mary's groaning and her tears moved our Lord to compassion, causing him to groan with her and to weep with her. But groaning is not limited just to human beings, is it? Animals can groan, whether it's a dog that barks or a cat that meows. But not just animate, living creatures, but other aspects of creation groan as well. When a strong wind passes through an area as it did just a week ago, if you're brave enough to be out in the weather, you will hear the trees groaning as they strain under the pressure of the winds. In our house, we get to listen to the wind moan, don't we, Matt? Moans as it goes through the trees there. And even buildings themselves will groan and creak when under great pressure. The Bible informs us that this groaning, whether it is by nature or whether it is in humans, serves a purpose. It wakes us up from our lethargy. It it, it causes us to understand that there is a danger around us. But from God's perspective, groaning does more than that. Groaning teaches us that we will experience something far greater in God's glorious purpose, that suffering shows us that there is a future. And so our theme from this passage this morning says that heirs of God suffer in hope. Heirs of God suffer Human beings suffer. Why are you, many of you, wearing masks today? Because human beings have been suffering due to this pandemic. But are we suffering in hope? If we are heirs of God, then we will suffer in hope. In Romans 5, The Apostle Paul wrote that we should glory in our suffering because as we glory in our suffering, it is because that suffering is causing us to develop spiritually. We grow in the midst of suffering. As children of God or as Verse 17 says, as heirs of God, we are not immune to suffering. We we don't get to escape suffering simply because we are heirs. Instead, 
Verse 17 and verse 18 tells us something even more. It helps us to identify that suffering is an essential part of our being an heir of God. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now Paul is not saying that the suffering saves us, that somehow in suffering uh, we are saved, we are purified, or anything like that. We know that suffering came because of Adam's sin. It is a result of rebellion against God, so that cannot mean that suffering saves us. It's part of the curse, like death. And when, at the end of time, sin is gone, so also will all the effects of that curse. Death, sorrow, suffering, pain, those will all be gone as well. Paul though, makes this very radical statement in verse 17. I I know you've been meditating on it as you've been memorizing it, as you've been doing the devotions, but in verse 17, he gives this beautiful statement that tells us that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. Now that doesn't mean that God's purpose in creation has failed, because Paul says that God has prepared this this greater glory, this, this more wonderful experience that we are going to know in the future. This glorious experience, he says, if placed on a weight with our suffering, is incomparable. Suffering that we endure in this world, he says, is not worth comparing with the weight, the glory of what God has prepared for us. But in case you think, that any suffering that you've gone through or are going through now is unfair, or that God should somehow make us, because we are his children, immune to that suffering, then you better think again. Because I want you to notice how the creation also waits in hope. The creation waits in hope. We endure suffering, it says, in hope, but the creation does as well. Creation didn't sin. It was not its fault that it is suffering. It is our fault. We are the ones that rebelled. We are the ones that turned against God. We are the ones that deserve to suffer. As humanity turned its back on God and said, get out of our lives, 
suffering came. You can't tell the creator of all that is good to get out of your life and then expect good to be the result of that. But creation, it didn't sin, it didn't uh, rebel against God, and yet the scripture tells us that creation suffers just like we suffer. I mean, think back to the Garden of Eden. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, an animal had to be killed in order for them to live. An animal had to die so that God could clothe them in order that they might not be struck dead on that day. We've talked about that in the past. But it wasn't just animals. It was the very creation itself. Weeds grew, floods, tornadoes, volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, all seemed to be the earth trying to tear itself apart. Animals that once played together now began to hunt one another. No wonder creation, our text says, can't wait for that future. When God's original purpose in creation will be fulfilled. God created the world with all its forms of life. And then in a grand finale, the scripture says that he created man. We just studied Genesis a couple years ago. And we saw the glory of what God did in chapter 2 of Genesis. And in that midst of all of that, the scripture tells us that, that the animals were brought before Adam and in a sense bowed to him as he named them because Adam, having been given dominion over them, was God's regent in the world. He was God's king here on this planet. And so the animals, as they came to him, acknowledged that he was their king, that he was the one that God had appointed to rule over them. So whether it was giraffes or goats, whether elephants or emus, badgers or bears, cuckoo birds or crows, they all came knowing that they had a king over the land. And then sin came. And the king was dethroned. The king was cast out. And so verse 19 declares, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. See, chaos has continued since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Chaos has continued over the earth because there is no king in the land. Those that God had given to have dominion over the earth, forfeited that right and were dethroned. All through the ages, creation, whether animate or inanimate, eagerly longs for the restoring of the sons of God, for those who will be God's heirs, and therefore as God's heirs will rule. And why does it wait? 
Why is there this eager longing? Notice that the cosmos waits for the revealing. The revealing of those sons of God. The revealing of those who will rule righteously. We in our sin, even today as as Christians, who ought to be stewards of what God has given to us. Good stewards that seek the well-being of the world around us. Far too often, we ignore that creation. Far too often, our thoughts are still focused on what makes me feel good, what makes me do good. Even at the cost, very often, of both animals and nature. God has called us to have a dominion, but we don't know how to rule because sin has corrupted the way that we think and the way that we respond in this world. And so, verse 19 declares, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, wait a minute, aren't we already sons of God? Hasn't the scripture already declared that we are sons of God? Yes and no. And we'll get to that yes part in a few minutes. But right now, we need to realize that we are not ruling as God designed for us to rule. We are not reigning over creation in a way that enhances creation, but very often in ways that destroy God's creation. But notice also how the cosmos waits for the freeing, for its freeing, for its being set free. You know, we complain about our suffering, but we have no reason to complain about our suffering. We brought it on ourselves. Human beings, in our rebellion against God, told God, get out of our lives. We still do it today in our politics. We still do it today in our educational system. We're still telling God, get out of the way. We can manage our own lives. We are Lamech, the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain, who said, I am better than God and who raised his children to say, we don't need God anymore. And that's the human race today. We chose our rebellion, but creation didn't. Isaiah 53, 6 says, Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned to our own way. It's a choice that we made as human beings. But creation didn't rebel. Verse 20 shows us that very clearly. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Well, Adam and Eve went willingly, but not creation. Creation was subjected to futility. That word futility is the the same word that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. Very often translated as meaningless, meaningless, or vanity of vanity. Creation was subjected to futility, to to meaninglessness in a sense. Not being what God originally designed it for. It has a, a different purpose than it did in its past. But creation still suffers. It suffers because the kings, those given dominion by God, 
the heirs of God, sinned. And when humanity declared independence from God, when it turned its back on God, it took the whole kingdom, it took the whole universe with it. God subjecting creation to futility. So all of nature is waiting, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, waiting for that time of restoration, the time when the true God-glorifying kings will rise up and set it free. Look at verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. It's longing, it's eagerly groaning, the scripture says. Waiting for that day. Waiting for the time when it will be returned to what its purpose was. What then is the purpose of its suffering? What what is the purpose then of lions eating gazelles and crocodiles gorging on on, uh, wildebeest and and raccoons eating the eggs of birds right out of their nests and mad cow disease or rabid raccoons or or squirrels? What what is the the purpose of this, this suffering amongst animals and nature itself as it seems to tear itself apart? Verse 20 describes the answer. Subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. In hope. You see, creation was not subjected just to futility, but it was subjected to futility for a purpose. In hope. God allows the effects of human rebellion to penetrate to the deepest part of this world, this, this creation, this universe of which we were a part. He allowed it to do all of that for a very specific reason summarized in those two words. In hope. Suffering is not accidental. It is not just a part of the curse We sinned and therefore everything fell apart and and God moved out of the way and said, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it and you'll suffer as a result of it. Yes, that is why suffering has come into the world. But God subjected creation to this for a purpose. And so he says, in hope. You know, we, we have many reasons given to us in the scripture why human beings suffer. But this is the only place where it tells us why creation suffers. Why creation suffers. It suffers in hope. You see, suffering makes us long for something better, something more than what we're experiencing God subjected all of creation to suffering to create hope. To create hope in us so that no one would ever be able to say, ah, life is good 
we don't need God. No. We live in this world, and just when we think we've got it all made, we think that, that everything is going just the way that we want it, you know, we're getting ready to retire, we build up our IRAs and, and you know, all the, the rest of our pensions and, and everything. We think everything is going to be good, and suddenly it all falls apart. Our plans are gone. And it reminds us that this life is not all that matters. That there has to be more. Therefore, notice how the cosmos waits for the birthing, for its birthing, for its becoming what God created it to be. In our devotionals this this week, uh, we read about a woman who had remained pregnant for 17 months. Still gave healthy, birth to a healthy eight-pound baby, but she, 17 months, she was pregnant. Ladies, can, can you imagine that? I mean, nine months is long enough, isn't it? Right? I mean, you got to make it through that first trimester with morning sickness and all that comes with that. And then it's, you know, a couple months of, well, my body's adjusting, it's making that adjustment, and then the third trimester hits, and especially if it hits during the summertime. Oh, when is this going to be over? When are we going to be done with this? Well, that's what Paul says is what's going on in creation. Creation is groaning as in the travail of childbirth. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 17 months, that's a long time. But how about 17,000 years or 70,000 years or however long it's been since creation struggling, seeking release. It's a vivid picture that Paul gives here. A tsunami comes and sweeps over the land, and what is the cause of it? It is a baby kicking in the womb, the baby earth struggling to be set free, thrashing, volcanoes erupting, Earthquakes, snowstorms, these are all the pains, the scripture says, of childbirth. The groaning cries, as our secular friends would say, of Mother Earth. And yet it goes far beyond the Earth itself. We have meteors that that become shooting stars as they pass through our universe. But those beautiful shooting stars are a meteor that is burning up and being destroyed. We have sun flares that mess with our radio signals, but it is the sun thrashing in the throes of consuming itself. And we have black holes as a star implodes and sucks everything in. All of these things are the suffering, the groaning of creation. And for what purpose? 
Why did God subject creation in hope? What is that hope? Creation waits in hope for the return of the image bearers of God, his heirs, the, the, the kings who will rule. We have been born again as children of God. We are heirs, but we are immature heirs. We are not ready to rule. We're like a young prince who knows that one day he will reign on his father's throne. But meanwhile, he has to learn how to live and how to think like a king. God uses, the scripture says, then the suffering of creation, the the, the problems of creation, whether it is a pandemic, whether it is a natural disaster, whether it is an animal attacking a human being, God uses the suffering of creation to form and train the heirs to teach us what it means as he prepares us to be kings of the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore, notice how Christians, like creation, Christians wait in hope. We can approach life from two ways. We can join with Job's wife and curse God and die. Or we can join with Job, who said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. We sing Chris Tomlin's song, Good, Good Father, or the song that the group sang, led us in singing this morning, The Goodness of God. We can sing those songs, but do we honestly believe that when we're in the midst of our life falling apart? Do we really, in the midst of those times, say, oh God, you're good. You're good when, you know, I get sick and spend a month in the hospital. and you know, Recovery takes a year. You're good when... I lose my job, and I have no income for my family. You're good when, and on goes the list. Do we really see that God is a good, good father who has adopted us into his family when those hardships come? Paul writes in verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait. Creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God, and we too wait. Oh, we have the first fruits, we have the down payment, we've received the Holy Spirit as God's guarantee that we are heirs and that we will inherit. We who've received the Holy Spirit have been born again born anew into the family of God. We are heirs, but we have not yet been crowned. Therefore, notice that the children wait for their redemption. I want you to think about this. 
We're redeemed. We are redeemed. We will be redeemed. Doesn't it sound like a contradiction? We are redeemed. We will be redeemed. And yet, that's what it says here. Remember back in verse 10. It says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Although the body is dead because of sin, it's not fully redeemed yet. The body has not been redeemed. The spirit has been redeemed. The spirit has life because the Holy Spirit has come into us. He's brought us the righteousness of Christ and The moment of death, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth for our sin so that we might be children of God. But we know that the body still has to be redeemed. We will die if Christ doesn't come back before that happens. Our bodies, verse 10 says, our bodies are dead because of sin. The curse of sin is still upon this physical material that we call a body. And so Paul writes in verse 23, beginning in verse 24, that we wait For the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. We were saved. That's the past tense there. We were saved, and yet we are, in a sense, waiting to be saved. Waiting for that redemption of the body. Waiting for that day when the trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise. Their spirits reunited with the spiritual body. And they will rise into the glory of God as kings and priests before our God. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy to be brought under subjection to Christ is death. Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus already defeated death, didn't he? On that third day, He rose from the dead, up from the grave. He rose. Wrong key, but hey, you know. He rose. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Death is defeated, we sing. And yet, the scripture says, it has not yet been brought fully under subjection to him. The final enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't rule over it now. He does rule over it. What it means is that God is still using death. That death is still part of that suffering and the groaning of creation. Because when we face death, we are reminded that we are not God. We are reminded that we are mortal. And in mortal 
people. Very often it is when we face that moment when we might have to meet our Creator. Faith is awakened. Very often there is that saying that you can't find an atheist in a foxhole. For those of you who are too young to know what a foxhole is, it is what soldiers during World War I and World War II would dig down so that they would be away from the the bombs and the, the machine guns, and they would hide down in there, waiting for the order for them to rush up against the enemy. No atheists in a foxhole, because they're all praying, get me out of this, get me out of this, as the bombs are bursting all around them. But a day is coming when the trumpet of God will sound. Those who have died, whose spirits are absent from the body, but present with the Lord, shall be reunited, body and spirit. And 1 Corinthians 15 goes on after it says, that the last enemy to be subjected, to come under submission to Jesus Christ is death. We read this. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Jesus Christ, he has redeemed us from our sins. He has given us a new birth by his spirit living in us. But on that final day of history, When this mortal body receives that final down payment and death is brought under full submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be freed from its bondage to corruption forever. So notice, therefore, that the children wait for their freedom. You see the parallels that are here between Creation, the cosmos, and us. Paul is making these parallels on purpose. He is drawing this connection between creation and us as human beings. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. but is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, which happens with the redemption of our bodies. And we, like creation, wait in hope. In hope. Verse 21 declares that we might obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is tied to us. As Christians, when we receive our rightful place with Christ as the heirs of God, creation too will be restored to its rightful place in that new heavens and that new earth. Martin Luther King Jr. made famous the line from that old spiritual, uh, Negro spiritual. Free at last, free at last, 
Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. But for Martin Luther King Jr., that dream was a long way off. His dream started becoming a reality until our educational and political system decided to destroy that. To turn black against white and white against black. The violence that King decried in that famous speech, I have a dream, that has awakened once again in the sinful hearts of human beings. Not only here in the United States, but we see it happening around the world. Our streets are running with the blood of our children and our young people. So we groan. We groan with creation. We long for that day when the true freedom will ring across the land. Not freedom from slavery. Not freedom of reparations or the freedom from the laws of the nations. Nor even freedom from the evils of racism. No, as Christians, we groan waiting for the day when the fullness of what Jesus meant when he cried out, whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. We can know a taste of that today when a soul is redeemed. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. When they realize they're rebellion against God and they confess that and they turn to him and they say, as Peter says over here on this window, Herr, Hilf, Meir, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And as they cry out, the Lord does what he did for Peter, who was about to drown, reached down, and he pulls us out, the scripture says, of the miry clay. He pulls us out of the storms of life, and he gives us new life. And if you're here today, you're listening today, and you do not know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you don't have hope. You do not know what it is to live in this world and not have futility. I think of Bill Gates and, and his wife, who build up this huge mass of wealth, and then stepped down and said, we need to do something with our life. All that, that we did really doesn't mean anything. Our lives were futile, meaningless. And now they tried to assuage their guilt by pouring money into various kinds of charities, their own included but that is not how you can be saved. Salvation comes when we recognize that we are creatures and God is the creator. And we bow before him and we confess our rebellion against him. We ask him to change our hearts, to open our understanding to him and to teach us how to love him and to care for him. When a soul is redeemed with tears of joy, they can declare, I am free from condemnation, free from the fear of death, free from the bondage of sin, 
The racist learns to love. The thief no longer steals, but now gives. The wealthy shows compassion to the poor. Lives are changed, hearts and attitudes redeemed. The abuser of nature learns to be a steward of what God has created. Yes, indeed, our hearts and lives are changed, but it is only a taste. It is a foretaste of the true freedom when there will be no sin, no sorrow, no suffering, and no death. No sickness will ever again lay waste to a body. Death will be defeated forevermore. And then we will join in the song of Moses and of the Lamb. It may not be these words, but it'll be similar. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty through Jesus Christ, I am free at last. But finally, I want you to notice that the children also wait for their belonging. Belonging in the family of God. Belonging to him, not only in part, but in whole. One theme of movies that has often been the concept of a young man or a young woman who didn't know that they were royalty until some messenger shows up with a letter or a a message of some kind that they are royal blood and that they are inheriting a kingdom. Now, I know every one of you is hoping that that will happen to you at some point. Well, it will on that day when Christ returns. But until then, be satisfied with knowing that you are an heir. But in those movies, this letter arrives by a courier, usually somebody from the uh, royal house, and they notify them that they are the heirs of this kingdom. And in the movies, generally before that person can actually take over the throne, all kinds of problems and, and, and difficulties arise that they have to overcome before they can be the king or the queen. Well, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is our royal courier. We read in verse 23, But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. When by faith we are born again, we have this this new life through Christ, we are declared to be royalty by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to us to confirm the good news of that new birth and our right as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. However, we must suffer before the coronation. Until that day when we see the face of the king, when we look him in his face, and he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. 
when he hugs us and he says, welcome, my son, welcome, my daughter. Until that day happens, we have a dragon to fight. That's what Revelation 12 says, that the dragon, Satan, has gone out to attack the heirs of the kingdom. And you and I had better to learn better learn how to fight quickly. We better learn how to face this enemy. A true heir will fight the dragon, not run from it. And when they are finished fighting, they will still be standing, Paul says in Galatians 6. We will remain having put on the full armor of God, having fought, we will still be on our feet. We will still be standing. You will be tested. Creation has been subjected to futility so that you could be tested, so that your faith is tested. And so we suffer. God using disease, disasters, as tests to prove that we are heirs, to prove that we have the Holy Spirit empowering us to live for the glory of God. Disease, death, someone stealing your identity, Loss of a job, loss of health, natural disasters, pandemics, politicians all become the means of testing who you are. Are you an heir of God? For all true heirs will still be standing. They will fight and they will win. You know, there's a childhood story from Hans Christian Andersen that tells of a prince who desired to marry only a true princess. And so he traveled through the land to meet all the, the princesses of, of you know, different countries and all. But none of them stood up to his tests. And so he returned home. And having returned home, one day, in the midst of a terrible storm, wind and rain, there comes a knock at the gate. Standing at the gate is a disheveled young woman, soaking wet, hair flopping all over, but she claims to be a princess. And so they bring her in, and the queen decides that she's going to test whether she's a princess or not. And so she makes up the bed. She takes a single hard pea, places it under the mattress. She stacks 20 mattresses, and then 20 elder-down mattresses on top of that. The princess goes in and sleeps. In the morning when the princess comes out, the queen says to her, How did you rest, my dear? Oh, it was horrible. There was something really hard in my bed. I think I'm black and blue all over. And so they knew that she was a true princess, for she was so tender. 
Paul says, baloney. If you're going to be an heir of God's kingdom, you have to fight the dragon. You have to be a warrior. You cannot be tender. You must be tested and you must be proved. And creation is that testing ground. And it has been subjected to futility in hope that you will be truly, will be proved to be truly an heir of God. And so those final verses of our text says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. The third time that we see that word wait, creation waits. The heirs wait for that final day. But while we wait, we are being tested. In the suffering of this world, will we be proved to be true heirs? How do you stand up under the tests that God has caused creation? to bring upon you suffering, sickness, pain, death. And so in conclusion, I ask you, how do you you view suffering in this world? Do you view it as an evil, as as something that's horrible and, and, and wish that God would somehow have gotten rid of it? Or do you now see it? as the means by which God is perfecting you, using it to test you and prove that you are truly heirs of God. Which has greater value for you, this present world in which we live, or that future hope that God has set before us? And so are you a son, an heir, or are you a servant, a slave, bound by sin and by fear of death? Father, this word that is before us is a powerful one. It challenges every worldview that Nick talked about, that sees The suffering of the world perhaps is just an imaginary thing, as Christian science would say. Or those that would say that, well, you got to have a life. For every life, you have to have a death. The karma of this world. Or do we see it as heirs of God? knowing that there is coming a glorious day when the dead in Christ will be raised and we who are alive will join them and forever we'll be with the Lord. Change our perspective. Open our eyes. 
And if there are those in this place or those that are watching who do not yet see the world that way, then I pray that your Holy Spirit will begin a great work in them to change their hearts, to change their minds, so that they with us can join on that glorious day as heirs of God, regents, ruling in that final kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.